did hers back to back yesterday and I'm doing mine back to back today. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm, uh, I have pioneered three churches in Texas. Two of them are still percolating. <clears throat> Two out of three, you know, that's not bad. Um, I did uh, my doctoral studies at Oral Roberts University in the area of church growth, church pioneering, and uh, wrote my dissertation in that area. So I do have a little bit of knowledge. Of course, Larry Hill and John Garlock and some others on our faculty have been out there on the mission field, and they've done it there. But I'm fairly persuaded that the principles of church planting are ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. Oh, that's a big word. Uh, uh, there you go, Jeff, uh, Wes. Everywhere present at the same time. Okay, that's good. I know another big word. It's uh, mentholatum. <laughs> That's that's the thousand year reign. No, that's not that's not right, is it? No. Okay, so well, um, <clears throat> I want to try to do five things in about fifty minutes, fifty-eight, forty-eight minutes. I'm going to walk on water, and I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to talk about all five of these things in fifty minutes. I want to talk about the call a little bit. I want to talk about the why of church planting. I want to talk about spiritual preparation in church planting. I want to talk about the extending or expanding of the kingdom of God in church planting. A little bit of a theological approach to it. And then I'll do something I didn't do last time. I'll talk about church growth principles a little bit. I didn't get to them last time. It's the plight of a teacher. You never get done everything you want to do. But anyway, here we go. The call. Um, how many of you know what a negative cell is? Any of you done enough selling to know? It's like uh, when I was starving to death trying to sell encyclopedias when I was in college. Um, we were taught... Um, and I wasn't always brave enough to do this, but we were taught that after we had their $10 down payment and after we had the contract all filled out, then we, we, we act like we're getting ready to tear the thing up, you see. And we, we say, now, if, if there's any reason you can think of why you wouldn't want this set of books, you know, and you just get real frank with them like this, I'll just tear it up right now. And you get like you're ready to tear it up. Now you get one of two responses. One is, oh, no, no, please don't tear it up. We really want these books. Now, you never said the word books all through your demonstration. No, no. You don't say books. I mean, but now at this point you say, you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to, you're going to, I bought $350 worth of books. And you say it for them. You anticipate it for them. And if you want me to just tear this up right now, I will. Now, they'll do one of two things. They'll say, no, 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 don't tear it up. Or they say, go ahead. <laughs> and you tear it up. <laughs> Oh, that's so painful. Twice I had to do that. But let me tell you something. Every time I did that, I got a little more brave with it as time went on and, and uh, got to the point where I would do it every time and not one of those families sent those books back. Now, 
What's that got to do with pioneering a church? Well, I think it's got a lot to do with it. If you can do anything else besides plant a church, I recommend you do it. (laughs) Now everybody's going to head for the door and I'm going to talk to the seats, right? You see, some people think that They're just going to put their name in the paper. Come here, Reverend Dr. J. Walter Axtell at the Holiday Inn. And all my pedigree, you know, impressive. God is not impressed. And neither is Joe Pagan that picks up the Sunday morning paper. He's seen Reverend Doctor come so and so come and go. He's not impressed. He won't come to your meeting. They will stay away in droves. You'll be underwhelmed. That's not how you pioneer a church. Okay, Dallas, here I am. Who's he? If God called you to pioneer a church, you won't be any good at anything else. You won't be happy doing anything else. You won't even want to do anything else. But if you can do anything else, take my advice. Do it. Now, not all of you are going to pioneer churches. But it is my hope and my prayer that some of you will. And I'm talking to you today. There are others of you that need to know the mechanics and what needs to take place in pioneering a church and what goes into pioneering a church because you may be a member of a new church sometime or you may be, you may take over a new church as a a pastor sometime, a church that maybe is less than a year old or, or just a new church and you still need to understand the, the principles of pioneering a church. Of course, I can't cover all of that in 50 minutes. But in the fall, I will teach church growth and church pioneering. And if you're interested, that's the place you ought to be. Now, people don't come to that class in droves either. Because, well, it just doesn't sound very exciting. The group is usually quite small. But I'll tell you what, the ones that come, they're just like sponges, and they just eat it up. And I'm very, very confident that those will end up out there pioneering churches. I gave them a little, each time I teach that class, I give them a little uh, gift analysis test. And every last one of them test positive, you know, they're going to plant churches. 
They, want, they don't want to do anything else. They won't be any good at anything else. They won't be happy doing anything else. But every Christian needs to know what's going on. And one of the main reasons is, and it comes to point number two here, the whys of pioneering churches. The why, why do you pioneer churches? Why do you plant new churches? Uh, the last time I taught church pioneering, I had the students do some demographic study of a little town, what's well, a fairly good sized town north of here, called Louisville. Personal friend of mine, pastors a church up there. And uh, we co- coordinated with him, and eventually he came and talked to the class about some of the needs and personality of the community and all of that. And they discovered this. Now, there were just over 100 churches in that community, a town of 125,000 people. And you think, my goodness, they've got too many churches. Just giving it uh, kind of a guesstimation. We didn't get real scientific in, in, in uh, estimating the number of seats available in that community. If, in other words, if everyone in Louisville wanted to go to church on any one particular Sunday morning, do you know how many seats there would be available in all of the churches in Louisville? Only one out of six people in that community would be able to get inside the door. And we, we have this mentality, we've got too many churches. No, we don't. We don't have enough. Every time I hear of a group of people who are talking about starting a new church, I say, go for it. Do it. You say, well, what if they don't survive? Well, the the mortality rate of new churches is quite high. I'll have to admit. But if they win one person to Jesus in the process, I say it's worth it in light of eternity. New churches, not small churches, but new churches are more efficient in winning people to Jesus. Now project yourself. You're a church planter now. Joe Planter will call you. And you've been assigned to go to Des Moines, Iowa, and Des Moines? Is that close to home? Oh, okay. Des Moines, Iowa, and Pioneer Church. Now, I don't know much about Des Moines. And maybe you've just been praying, and every time you pray, Des Moines, Iowa comes on you, and, and you think, I guess I better check into Des Moines, Iowa. And you decide after prayer and cons- deliberation that God wants you to go to Des Moines, Iowa and pioneer church. And you, get, you start investigating Des Moines, Iowa, and you find, lo and behold, they've got a thousand churches in Des Moines. And you think, how can I start a church in Des Moines, Iowa, when they've already got a thousand? And people will look at you funny and say, man, don't you know there are a thousand churches already in Des Moines? Why do you want to come and start another one? Right? It's like the two salesmen that go to an, uh, some country, some uh, third world country, 
two shoe salesmen go to a third world country, and when they get there, one is elated and the other one is just totally crushed and destroyed. The despondent salesman says, nobody in this country wears shoes. But the positive guy says, nobody in this country wears shoes. There's a thousand churches in Des Moines. Why do we need a thousand and one? Because that thousand and one church is going to win some people to Jesus. That's why. Old churches aren't good at winning people to Jesus. They just aren't. Statistically, it's borne out. Old churches don't win very many people to Jesus. It's the new ones that do it. Why? It's a matter of survival. If you plan to eat in the next 12 months, you better get out there, get off your holy other, and win some people to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, just, just survival, isn't it? I mean, it makes pretty good sense, doesn't it? You don't put your name in the paper... They'll avoid you like the plague. You do something else. That's number three. Spiritual preparation. Now here's Reverend J. Walter here, and he's about to tell you that the most important thing you need to do in church pioneering is pray. And you'd expect me to say that, wouldn't you? Why, I'm a man of the cloth. Sure you pray. But let me tell you something. If you don't pray, you won't eat. Oh, unless you've got this denomination behind you that's giving you a full salary and you can watch TV. I don't like that strategy where everything is just handed to the church planter. I really don't. You ever watch a bird break, a little chick break his way out of an egg? You ever watch that? You know what happens to that chick if you help him? Here, chick, let me give you a hand. I'll crack it for you, and I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll just, I'll just open it up for you, and then you can just fly away. What happens to that chick? Anybody know? He dies. At best. What happens to a church that you help will be less than strong. If that church is going to survive, that church has got to survive the only way any other church is going to survive. That church has got to survive on its knees. Several years ago, a man named C. Peter Wagner wrote a book, <laughs> titles, I love them, Look Out, the Pentecostals Are Coming. Look out, the Pentecostals, you know, he wasn't a Pentecostal, was he? You can tell by the title. Now, C. Peter Wagner is a church growth expert. He's a scientist. He's a sociologist. 
And every time something good happens on this globe in regard to church growth, you can bet your last dollar. No, don't bet. Don't bet. You can believe that C. Peter Wagner is going to be there and he's going to find out what's going on. And in Latin America, South America particularly, particularly in the countries of Brazil and Argentina, tremendous revival going on. Now, no good congregationalist wants to readily admit that it's the Pentecostals that are doing it. He's a, he's a congregationalist, similar to Baptist. When I was a Baptist, I really didn't want to admit that the Pentecostals were doing anything right. You, you get the picture, don't you? But... His scientific uh, drive within him persuaded him that he better get down there and find out what's going on in Argentina. And so he does, and he runs into a man named Omar Cabrera. And Omar Cabrera had a very, very interesting strategy. He was, he's an evangelist. You probably know something about him. His daughter and son are students here, Doris and Claudio. In fact, they were in the first hour, and so I introduced them to everybody. <clears throat> Here's what he says. <clears throat> Omar Cabrera a San, of Santa Fe, Argentina, is one evangelist who takes seriously the need to bring, to bind the strong man or to break the power of territorial hierarchy. When he goes into a new area, he shuts himself up alone in a hotel room over a period of four or five days for intensive fasting and prayer. He does battle with the forces of the enemy until he identifies the strong, man, strong men who have ruled over that territory. Then he wrestles with them and binds them in the name of the Lord. When this happens, he just walks into his meeting and announces to the audience that they are free. Sick people begin to get healed. Lost people begin to get saved even before he preaches and prays for them. church growth. Now you can have the best strategy there is. The best laid plans of mice and men. But if you don't win the battle in the air, you're not going to win anybody to Jesus either. Dr. Paul Youngie Cho tells, I, I don't know if it's in one of his books, I tried to find this story in, in, in my library and I couldn't find it, and maybe I just heard him say it. I've been in some of his meetings. He tells about a little Korean woman who is about 55 years old, it was at the time, and she comes to him one day and she says, Dr. Cho, I desire to go to Japan and start a new church. He says, you can't do that. No Korean has ever gone to Japan and started a church. You can't do it. And she said, oh, but God is telling me to do that. Well, she had his attention now. And he got real generous. He says, I'll give you a one-way ticket and rent in a small flat for 30 days. 
That's all I'll give you. Now, it's not that he didn't have more to give her. But he didn't want to help the chick. What did this woman do? Now, if you had a one-way ticket and rent for 30 days, what would you do? Well, you're going to fast for one thing, aren't you? She fasted and prayed. She didn't even take food with her. You know, she didn't stack up for when the Antichrist comes. You know, that mentality. By the way, I'd sure hate to get caught with my food rations hiding in a cave somewhere when the Antichrist shows up, wouldn't you? Well, anyway, I don't know why I said that. I just, free. I mean, you didn't pay any tuition for that. <clears throat> but this little woman shuts herself up in this room and she prays for 30 days. And she did battle with the principalities and powers in the air. And at the end of that 30-day period, nice timing, wasn't it? At the end of that 30-day period, she sensed that something had been broken in the spirit. Now, she wasn't a theologian. She was just a woman of prayer. She'd, she'd not read any books on this. Cho just said, go pray. And she did, and she battled with the forces of darkness until their power was broken. And she went outside, down to the street, out into the street, and in two hours' time, she had a congregation of 200 people. She was preaching to people, and they just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And in two hours' time, she had the largest congregation in Japan at that time. She didn't put her name in the paper. She didn't invite people to come. She broke the territorial rights of the principalities of darkness that were reigning over that one little section of Tokyo. And when that happened, then they had freedom to come and hear the gospel. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Wagner uh, wrote that book I was telling you about, uh, Here Come the Pentecostals, in 1973. Look out, the Pentecostals. In 1986, he reprinted the book. And he put a different title on the front of it. It says, Spiritual Power in Church Growth. I know something about that guy. He got to messing around too close to the edge of the water, and he fell in. <laughs> now he's not standing back from those Pentecostals with that mama of a turtleneck sweater. In no. neat wood. And so God and so he had to reprint the book. I mean, the first printing was just loaded with all these statistics, you know. But nothing of the method. Only the results. But it was those results that got his attention. Let me read one other thing in here that, to me, is very pertinent. It's um, uh, Wagner quotes a guy named Ralph Mahoney. Any of you ever heard of him? <laughs> you know he's messing around with the wrong crowd now, don't you? Okay. My goodness. This power cannot be broken with logical arguments, he says. It can only be broken with a greater power. 
Ralph Mahoney tells the story of a missionary uh, who was distributing literature in a small town on the border of Brazil and Uruguay. The national border ran right along the main street of town. In other words, if you were on one side of the street, you were in Uruguay. If you were on the other side of the street, you were in Brazil. Get the picture? Okay. On the Uruguayan side of the, the street, no one would accept the tracks or they would destroy them. On the Brazilian side, the people would accept them gladly. As a test, he offered tracts to individuals on the Uruguayan side and again to the same individuals when they crossed the street to the Brazilian side. The same person would refuse on the one side and accept with thanks on the other side. Now, you may not know much about territorial rights in the air, but the devil knows all about it, and he knows where he can operate and where he cannot operate. It says, naturally, he was curious about this, and he prayed to God for a word, and God showed him that on the Brazilian side, the strong man had been bound, but not on the Uruguayan side. So, whatever strategy you choose will be a pretty good strategy if you bathe it in prayer, if you understand that you're dealing with principalities and powers. Now, if you pioneer a church in Des Moines, Iowa, the principle is the same as whether or not you, or if, if you go to um, Santa Fe, Argentina. It doesn't matter where you pioneer a church the, the, the strategy is always the same. You pray. That's the first part of the strategy. The second part of the strategy is you pray. And the third part of the strategy is you pray. Ad infinitum. You pray. That is what will guarantee the success or cause its demise in pioneering a church. All right, now, let me get theological with you a little bit, <clears throat> and I took too long for that part, but it was fun. Um, theologically, turn with me to Matthew 16, 19. great confession of Peter. Jesus says to his disciples, whom do men say that I am? They, their response, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist come from the dead. Some say that you're the great prophet, speaking of Elijah. He says, but who do you say that I am? And here comes Peter now. Now, Peter's not always impetuous. Sometimes he's right on target. And he says, why, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, son of Jonas, flesh and blood has not revealed. Say reveal. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. But my Father, which is in heaven. Now listen to me. 
When you lead someone to Jesus, if you just hand them the Roman road, I doubt if anything's going to happen. Now, I'm not, I'm not against the Roman road or any other method that you want to, the evangelism explosion or, or whatever you want to use to win people to Jesus. People have to be confronted by the personage of Jesus. Not just a theology. Not just a, an, a code of ethics. Not just a doctrine. They must be confronted by Jesus himself. He must be revealed to them. You get the picture. You don't just say Jesus loves you and wants to save you. From what the pagan would say? I'm having fun. Or at least he might say that. No, he must confront the personage of Jesus. Listen, when I preach, and people are just sitting there and nodding their heads, you know, I know, Lord, they're not getting this. Or they're, sometimes they're going this way. Either way, when I'm preaching to people, I don't want them to agree or disagree. I want them to repent. And the only way people are going to repent is when they've encountered Jesus. Jesus wants to confront people. Not a doctrine, not a church, not a theology. He wants to confront people himself. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were created by him and for him. And verse 14 in John 1 says, that the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. Who beheld His glory? The Pharisees didn't see it. The Sadducees didn't see it. They were still sad. The Pharisees didn't see it. They weren't fair, you see. They didn't see it. They were saying to Jesus, Who do you think you are? calling yourself son of man. What is this son of man business? He says, well, before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones to stone him. He took on that holy name. He, he was speaking that holy name, if you could see it in the Greek. He was saying, I am that I am to them. And they took up stones to stone him because he had blasphemed. You ever wonder why in John 8, why they took up stones to stone him when he said, before Abraham was, I am? That's why. Because he was to them, he was blaspheming. They didn't see it. I don't know if Peter know, knew what he had a hold of, but the Father revealed something to the man. The Father in the Spirit revealed to Jesus, this is the Christ. 